0: So we feel accountable for making sure that the investments are secured and that we have found a business model whereby we stay in control of the asset. Right? If a customer would default five years from now and go bankrupt, the asset is ours. We can take the asset away and reinstall the solar system somewhere else. Right? That is a huge factor in ensuring that the investors that are making investments on the crowd investing platform have a reduced risk. You shouldn't restrict yourself in saying, oh, I don't know about this market, because you can always find out there are experts in the market, because there are already companies doing business in these markets. And it's more a matter of finding this approach. We have sort of a standard approach when we look into new markets. We go to the same entities in these markets, for example, the German Chamber of Commerce. First touch point, then we say... We need a lawyer we need an accountant we need this and they provide us contact details and we're done and this is maybe two days of work
1: bonjour bonjour and welcome to mission first the podcast to get inspired and to learn from successful entrepreneurs who are building a sustainable future for our planet and its people i am Gilles toussaint your host and the founder of gt impact a growth and digital marketing agency working only with companies making a positive difference in this world. Lots of entrepreneurs dream of having an impact globally, but at the same time, you often hear that you should be careful to not internationalize too quickly. Today, I have the chance to interview an entrepreneur who is the proof that it is actually possible to internationalize your company and have a global impact very quickly. Martin Barth has for mission to save the planet as the CEO of Ecoligo. Ecoligo helps solar projects to be funded for businesses and companies in emerging countries like Kenya, Vietnam or Costa Rica. The solar projects are financed through the crowdfunding platform that offers attractive returns to private investors. Investments start from €100 and save tons of CO2 emissions, enabling citizens to have an impact on the global energy transition With their money. Martin co-founded Ecoligo in 2015. They have now 27 people active in six countries, among others in Latin America and Africa. They raised three million euros of funding, they found product market fit, they now have 73 projects that have been implemented, they make seven-digit figure revenue, they were about to break even when I talked to Martin the first time a few months ago, and they are scaling up now. Martin prepared a list of do's and don'ts on the topics of how to internationalize your company from scratch. One small comment before we dig into this episode. This podcast is like a masterclass, with long episodes where we talk in detail about the challenges and learnings of every guest. But if your time is limited and you still want to get advice about growing your business and having a greater positive impact on this planet, I've just created a best-of series with a special format – 10 audio episodes between 3 to 10 minutes, shorter than a coffee break. They are only hands-on advice shared by the guests of this podcast. You can receive these best of episodes by signing up for my newsletter, in which I also send a text summary of the do's and don'ts shared by each guest after every episode. So if you want to get these condensed and useful tips for and from successful entrepreneurs with a sustainable mission, just go to my website, gtimpact.com, or find the link in the description of this episode and sign up for the newsletter. So I'm really excited to talk together today. Martin, thank you very much for being here today. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for the invitation. Thank you very much for being here. That's a pleasure for me. You are the founder of Ecoligo. Do I pronounce it correctly?
0: Yes, that's pronounced correctly.
1: <laughs> so, can you tell me a bit more more about your mission and what your company is doing?
0: So, when we started Ecoligo um, a few years back, we had spotted a problem in the market, and my co-founder and I had worked in that market a few years uh, before founding Ecoligo, and we said. We have to address this problem, and Ecoligo was founded to address that problem and to generate a global impact by doing so. Um, to be a bit more precise, the problem that we saw was that in emerging markets, solar projects could help businesses to reduce their energy cost, but oftentimes these projects don't get built, and that has a multitude of reasons. One is these companies often don't have capital themselves to invest into these projects, and also local banks don't provide attractive bank loans. So the financing really was the key that could unlock these projects and the potential of saving CO2 emissions. So the mission of Ecoligo is really to uh, bring finance to these CO2 emission saving assets and to help the businesses reduce their energy costs while doing so.
1: Can you define what you mean by emerging markets?
0: Emerging markets um, are basically economies that are growing rapidly um, and that are not yet fully developed, right? So other than Europe and, for example, uh, the United States, there is still a lot of development work that is happening in these countries, uh, being it infrastructure, um, the economies, um, the educational systems and so on. But because these economies are growing so rapidly, if we don't set the foundation right now, then we're facing a massive problem in terms of reaching our climate targets.
1: Right? I so, you were active in six countries, Latin America, Africa. What are the top, like uh, the, these six countries?
0: Yeah, so we are in six countries as of today. Um, we actually started the business uh, in Ghana. Um, so I, I lived in Ghana when we started off uh, the company. And the reason for that was that the market conditions were just perfect. There is abundant sunshine. Um, The businesses in Ghana are paying a very high tariff for their electricity. So the solar energy could be very competitive. Um, And then as a company, we uh, ventured into more markets. So Kenya was really attractive, which was our second market. But we knew from the beginning that the company is addressing a global problem, right? I mean, climate change is a challenge that we're facing, irrespective of the actual country. And so we we stepped into more markets over time. And we are in Chile and Costa Rica in uh, Central and South America. And we are in Vietnam and Thailand in Southeast Asia.
1: So you are helping, if I understood correctly, on the financing part, meaning that in that case, you are not into the operational part. So the people who are Uh, building the solar projects, in that case, are local businesses.
0: Yeah, that's actually one of the key elements of our business model. Um, We don't build the projects ourselves. For that, we uh, contract local partners to provide us with the turnkey project. Once a project is built, though, it it is our project. We own the asset and we sell our customers to the business. We sell cheap uh, solar electricity, right? Um, So we're not involved in the construction of the project. Uh, We think that in these emerging markets that we're in, there's plenty of qualified companies that know how to build solar projects. Part of our philosophy as a company is that we want to also enable economic development. And that also entails that we support local companies, local jobs, and further qualified work, right? Right. So it's part of our strategy to always use local partners, but once the project is built and we own it, we are responsible to make sure that the energy is generated. And that is um, an advantage of our business model because we can guarantee to the customer to whom we're selling the energy that we have an actual interest in making sure the solar system is running. Only if it runs, we can sell uh, the electricity. Uh, And only if we sell the electricity, our customer is making savings because we are cheaper than the electricity from the national grid. But for the crowd investors, that's also an advantage because they are funding these projects. And we're not like other players in the market that just provide capital to third-party companies. Because we own the projects, uh, we basically have a self-interest to make sure the project is running well. And therefore, we have uh, towards the crowd investors uh, a little bit of a different uh, offering than uh, uh, other crowd investing platforms.
1: Can you explain to me a bit more about the crowd investment part? This is a very interesting part. Does your project actually involve a lot of different players and like, stakeholders? I read that it starts more from the business side, but the, the interest rate are also very interesting for the crowdfunding. So, can you tell me a bit more about this?
0: When we started the company five years back, The problem was really that uh, for these projects that were available in the markets, no institutional investor or no bank had an interest in providing the funding, and therefore the projects never materialized. But at the same time, we knew that sustainable finance was getting more and more a topic that people actually thought about, right? People started to think about what can they do with their own money, and do I really need to have my savings sitting on a bank account uh, and the bank can use this money, but I don't even know what the bank is using the money for. That is also why we see such a rise of, uh, for example, digital banks like Tomorrow that only will fund uh, sustainable projects. And that is also why more and more funds are set up and green bonds are set up where people have the opportunity to invest into something sustainable with their capital. And so when we started the company, we said, why don't we take advantage of that? We take advantage of people that are willing to use their money for sustainable energy projects, and we take advantage of another situation, which is the low-interest environment in Europe at the moment, right? If you put your money on a bank account, you don't get a lot of interest. And so people have also financially an uh, incentive to use their money in two different investments. And that was the principal idea. Um, and then we set it up and now it's working in a way that people can register at the crowd investing platform, Investments, And once you're registered, you're free to invest in any of the projects that are presented on the platform. And these projects are Ecoligo projects. So Ecoligo is always the owner of the asset. And we have this uh, previously explained self-interest to maintain the project and make sure that you know, it's generating electricity. But crowd investors basically can invest from as little as 100 euro um, up to a few thousand euro. The the legal limit is uh, 25,000 into a single project. And then the platform is collecting the money that the people invest until you've reached the volume that is needed to build the project. And once it's reach that volume, the money is basically transferred to the construction partners um, in various milestones that they have to achieve to get the the payout. But they will then build the project. And once it's built, it belongs to EcoLego. And the crowd investors are getting an interest on their capital they have invested into the project. So uh, once a project is generating electricity and selling that electricity to the local business in the markets... That revenue that is generated is used to pay for maintenance, for spare parts, for the insurance of the asset, but then ultimately also for the interest and the repayments to the crowd investors. That is always project specific. So crowd investors see exactly in which project they are investing and what is built, as well as what is the impact in terms of CO2 savings they have for each 100 euro they invest
1: The interests are pretty high. And I saw an example of, like, if you invest 2,500 euros, for example, you get, what, 836 euros back interest in five or six years?
0: Yes. So interest rates uh, are between 45 and 8%. And they reflect um, the potential of the project, uh, as well as the risk that is involved, maybe from the specific market that the project is positioned in. And the way it, it can work is projects obviously generate uh, a little bit high, a higher return than the interest rate. So there's enough capital coming in for payment of all these own m services and insurance for EcoLigo to make money, but then also to repay the crowd investors. So we're really taking advantage of the fact that there is a low interest environment in Europe. If, for example, you would get maybe... 5% in Germany for just leaving your money on your bank account, you would have to ask a higher interest rate from, or, or give a higher interest rate to the people, right, to incentivize them to not leave the money in the bank account but to use it for our projects. And then at some point, obviously, it wouldn't work anymore from the economics because the project don't generate that much return. So it's really a situation that we can use because of this, this environment that we're in.
1: That's a very good point. Two questions that come to my mind. How do you define these interests? Because they are variable. And also, when you started, how do you define the projects?
0: Yeah, so we look into projects. Uh, Like I said, we look into the the market environment. So whether um, a project is in a country with certain regulations in place or or risks in place. And and we also look into the project specifics, right? So who is our off-taker of the project? Um, give you an example. If our off-taker is a manufacturer of um, textile garments that are used uh, by big international brands such as Nike and Adidas, um, and that's a solid company, right? So my risk, my risk is reduced. But if my off-taker, my counterparty, is a newly established company uh, that since maybe two years is trying to do sustainable farming of cashew nuts. Uh, then obviously my risk is a bit higher because I don't even know whether this company can sustain operations. And there are a lot of factors that basically affect the interest rate. Then we also have to look into the market side, which means the the crowd investors, right? If we on the platform have uh, a few projects of uh, long durations, uh, long durations means your capital is bound for longer into the project. So to incentivize investors to invest into this, the interest rate may be higher because we know that people for maybe a two or three year loan are willing to accept a lower interest rate because they know I get my money back in three years instead of in eight. So it's always a play of all these um, factors. Um, And therefore, also you can see even two projects in the same market with similar customers and have maybe varying interest rates that we offer to the crowd investors.
1: And so you have your own analysts in house who are like evaluating these risks and, and determine the, the interest every time?
0: Yes. So we, we perform also a financial due diligence on each customer that gives us also a risk score. Some customers don't even pass that due diligence and then we don't do a project with them debt score, for example, is one of the, um, the metrics used to define the interest rate.
1: You said something, you know, this is working super well now because the interest rates in the bank are super low. Of course, there is always the fact as well that there is an incentive for people to do good because they know they are supporting, helping to fight against uh, climate change. What if interest rates, and not especially in economies, but what if interest rate in two years or three years time starts to be really high? You said you can always try to keep up and, and have an incentive, be a little bit higher in interest than, than the bank. But have you planned that and in, in, in how you will react that happens?
0: So first of all, I, I don't think it will happen. Usually changes in interest rate. Also, if you look uh, into the historical uh, data um, that, that are set by the central banks that are lending money to your commercial banks that are then on lending it to uh, to businesses and private people. And those changes are are done very gradually, right? So you're not going to see a change from 0% to 10%. You're going to see an increase by maybe 0.1% or 0.2%. And so these changes will happen so slowly that we know in the next 5 to 10 years, it will not happen that interest rates get to a level where um, we have this issue. Secondly, also, if that will happen, it happens for everyone in the industry right in general capital will become more expensive that means our competitors for example that also need financing for their projects are facing the same issue so the market dynamics change but they change on a global scale therefore the impact on the company is not that um, that significant and lastly and i think this is the most important thing is we're running out of time to fight climate change right so There's always this debate about how much will it cost to avoid climate change, to stay within the 1.5 degree Celsius Paris agreement target. And, And that question we cannot afford to have anymore in the future, right? We need to address it. And therefore, I do think it becomes more and more something that people are aware of. And people are aware of we have to do something about climate change. And if we don't do everything that's in our hand and in our control, uh, then we have really severe uh, issues that we're facing in five to ten years. As a consequence thereof, I think the interest rate, the financial return you're making, becomes less and less of a relevant factor to be considered for the people that want to support these projects. Yeah. So I don't think we're seeing this change in the next year or two. But certainly, if we think about a long-term perspective, uh, that is something that we uh, truly believe that more and more capital needs to be deployed to these projects, and therefore also opportunities open up maybe from institutional investors that you know need to deploy much more capital into these projects.
1: One question I have before we briefly talk about some numbers about your company: one of the good things with your projects is that you own the. A- to solar projects and the assets. And you make sure, of course, that they generate electricity. But what happened at, at the end of life of panels? This is something I'm, I'm curious of the solar panels.
0: First of all, we signed rather long-term contracts with our customers, right? Uh, so 20 year contracts. And solar panels, um, although commercially then being at their end of their life, that just means that they've dropped in their efficiency so they will still work uh, they just work to around 80 percent of their nominal capacity so a 300 watt panel still works and operates but only at maybe 240 watt
1: really in uh, like how many years do they stay at 80 percent
0: so they drop they drop roughly uh, to 80 percent after 20 years and then And we factored that in in all of our calculations, right? But then when they come to the commercial end of life, there's basically um, a few options what can happen with them. So the customer may just decide, I just leave them on the roof. I do nothing with them, right? I just keep the energy as long as it's running and I just utilize that. Commercially, however, because you can take advantages of uh, depreciation and so on, it may make sense to upgrade the panels and replace them with the latest state-of-the-art technology, right? So even then, for the same space used, you can get much more power output. Um, And the third thing is, is, uh, or the consequence of that is, if the panels are then removed from the system, that our customer who became the owner of the panels at the end of our contract lifetime can either sell them on into like a, a secondary market, and we see that market is already established these days, uh, because the first projects that were built 20 years ago are now basically the panels are, are reused. Uh, or alternatively, can just recycle the panels. And then there is a the debate of recycling of panels as of today. There is no efficient Recycling in place on a larger scale for panels, but panel manufacturers take them back and do recycle them. It's just not a very efficient process. But that will also change because uh, the market of second-hand or recyclable uh, panels only you know start starts to develop now. If we think back, right, 20 years ago, the number of projects that were built are rather limited in terms of the overall volumes, right. So only now we're seeing that there is a market coming up for recycling of panels. But in 20 years' time, when our projects are finished, certainly that will be established.
1: Okay, but so the main part here is that in any case, your client at the end of the contracts, at the end of the 20 years, actually are becoming the owner of the solar panels, so then they can decide what, what they can do with it.
0: Yes, exactly.
1: Let's talk a bit about numbers. So how many employees do you have right now?
0: So we have 25 employees, half of those are sitting in the Berlin office, although now uh, working remotely because of the corona situation. And the other half is basically spread across the six uh, project countries that we have.
1: In terms of revenue, you told me you are about like seven-digit revenue figures right now.
0: Yes, we are at a seven-digit uh, annual recurring revenue because the nice thing of our business model is that we have these 20-year contracts, Right. So each contract that is established generates us revenue for the next 20 years. Um, so that is sort of the, the the basis of our revenue that continues to grow, but it can't really shrink because the projects are up and running.
1: You make revenue from selling the electricity. Th- that's it. You're not taking a commission like some crowdfunding platform on the financing of the project.
0: Yeah, exactly. There's there's no commission. It, it's really a model where we sell electricity.
1: Can I ask you for which reason you decided to go for that model versus some of the competitors going for the other model?
0: Yeah, it, it really had to do with uh, the fact that we wanted control over the asset, right? So other crowd investing platforms, like I said earlier, they, they just transfer capital right, from the private people to someone that builds projects. But once they have made their commission, uh, they don't really care what happens with the project until a project is maybe defaulting or a customer is defaulting, they've moved on and raised another three, four projects. And so the impact is minimal, but also the control. And we said, we feel accountable. right? So we feel accountable for making sure that the investments are secured and that we have found a business model whereby we stay in control of the asset. Right? If a customer would default five years from now and go bankrupt, The asset is ours, we can take the asset away and reinstall the solar system somewhere else, right? That is a huge factor in ensuring that the investors uh, that are making investments on the crowd-investing platform um, have a reduced risk.
1: I like the fact that you said you feel accountable, so you you basically take the responsibility. And that's one of your unique selling points in that case as a company. Uh, In terms of financing, how much have you raised so far? So in terms of
0: equity, uh, we raised uh, €3 million of of growth capital uh, for the company. Uh, And then for the projects, we raised roughly €12 million on the crowd-investing platform. That is uh, directly attributable to each of the individual projects.
1: So what I'd like to do now is to to go back a bit in your shoes when you started the company. And how long did it take before... You found your co-founder yeah. and you incorporate the company and have officially the first money to be able to you know sustain yourself.
0: Yeah, so actually in, in our case, my co-founder and I, we met uh, actually many years before we founded the company. Uh, so we met in 2013 at a solar conference in Kenya, in Nairobi. Marcus uh, was part of the uh, team that had organized the conference and I was one of the speakers at the conference. Uh, and we actually met uh, over the evening drink reception at the, the pool of the hotel that, that the conference was at. And, and we started talking. And Marcus back then was working for the GSZ, the German Development Corporation. And I was working for a company called One Shore that was developing solar projects in the region. Marcus and I, although we lived in Berlin for two years in our past jobs, we always met up in Mombasa, in Nairobi, in Dar es Salaam, in Tanzania, and we started talking about these projects. And it was in our bo- both interest to to see projects being built, right? I mean, that's what you want if you try to develop projects. You want to see them getting materialized. And Marcus in his role was supporting German companies entering these markets and developing business models for them and supporting them. And and I was really trying to convince customers of. Um, getting solar projects so that we could build them. And we were talking for two years about the fact that albeit there being so much potential, hardly any project actually materialized. I think my my company back then built one or two projects that are really small in that period. And so we said the issue, and we both agreed, is the lack of finance, right? If we could offer a finance solution, we, we could address this problem. And so We were talking for this for a very long time, and then actually Christmas 2014, we said, hey, why don't we look into crowdfunding as a means to get capital to this project? And so that idea, we we developed a little bit. We took part in business plan competitions, and uh, in summer 2015, I left my job. Uh, I said, uh, I think I really want to focus on this finance part. Um, But I left the job not knowing whether we actually even get to the point of starting our own company, right? Because in the early days of a company, you really have to address a lot of concerns and think about how a business model could work. And it's a lot about sort of strategizing about how you could make it work. Um, And then Marcus left his job also at the end of 2015. And we got accepted at the end of 2015 also into the Climate Kick Accelerator Programme. And that to us was the the kickoff point where we said, okay, if with our pitch and our idea of the business model, we get accepted into this program, we get a little bit of grant money to to work on this, let's try it and let's start a company. So in February 2016 is when we actually established the company. And then it took us a year uh, until around uh, March or April 2017 when we raised the first uh, seed round of, of capital. Uh, so the first round of of business angels that invested into Ecoleco.
1: And until then, you had left your job, so mid twenty fifteen, and then you start Climate Kick in February twenty sixteen or end of twenty fifteen. And the, this whole period uh, until you get a seed investment, on which money have you like survived or lived?
0: It's a good question because it is actually not easy, right? You're used to get a salary. And suddenly you don't get a salary anymore. You have the Climate Kick scholarship came with some brand money to be used for the living expenses of the founders, but obviously that's a very small amount. What Marcus and I did was doing a lot of consulting work on the side, basically to have some sort of income to make a living because the company obviously wasn't making any money yet. And you also want to deploy the capital that's in the company towards the goals of the company not to your living expenses we didn't pay out ourselves a salary for the first i think two and a half years or so so you really need to make sure that there is a way to sustain your living because i honestly believe that's also why a lot of companies fail because at some point the personal life becomes too complicated if you don't have money to pay the rent and so on so the struggle is too difficult
1: That is obviously one of the hardest parts, is how how to generate money and to be able to keep on going with the projects. But during two and a half years, if you didn't pay yourself from the company's grant money, it means you use this money to start hiring employees at the beginning, already before the two and a half years, and you were paying them before yourself, still having some consulting gig to pay yourself?
0: So we started hiring the first employees shortly after we established the company. And obviously we paid them, them salaries Admittedly, small salaries, but, you know, it's also different if you're the founder of the company, right? So i rather pay my employees money than myself, because at the end of the day, I get, obviously, a financial return at the end of the company life, either when you're profitable or when you sell the
1: company. Talking about that, in the ideal world, if you can choose tomorrow, what is your aim with uh, Ecoligo? Do you see an IPO do you see staying with the company's 20 years and making it one of the biggest companies in the world, or do you see a, an exit and be able to start another project? Uh,
0: so personally, I definitely see myself starting another project in a, a few years' time, uh, just because I have a, a lot of different interests and some other ideas I want to pursue that I have already in the head of my mind. For the company, the interesting thing is that Ecoligo has a unique business model that actually would allow each of the three options that you just said, right? Because the revenues are coming from these assets in the long-term contracts, you could basically run the company and just continue it as a perpetual mobile and just live off the revenues that you're generating with your projects. But I do think the more interesting options are an exit or an IPO. And the reason I say that is, first of all, you can generate much more impact by doing that. If you, you already now aim for an exit and you go the growth path of raising growth capital, I think we can much faster achieve a much higher impact. And that's, that's the relevant part of it. And we can do so obviously being in a business model that, that is profitable so that an IPO or an exit also financially is the more attractive option. The IPO is quite interesting to us because one of the pillars of the business was the crowd investors, right? So crowd investing is similar, like when you do an IPO is basically any kind of investor putting their money to the projects with an IPO, they would put the money to the company itself. But it would be sort of a consistent story that, um, that has, you know, some, some charm to it, I would say.
1: Let's talk about the the do's and don'ts that you sent me. You know, what is pretty exceptional from your company is that how to internationalize your company or startup globally from scratch. So the first one you sent me was, do think of your company from the beginning as a global player and think big immediately. So can you iterate a bit on that?
0: I do think that if you have a solution for a problem that is a global problem, then you're only limiting yourself if you focus on just one market. I I think a very well-known example, at least in Germany, although on a completely different product, is the networking platform Xing versus LinkedIn. Both were founded almost at the same time, and Xing said, oh, we want to be the number one in Germany or the Dach region, so Austria, Switzerland included. And LinkedIn, from the beginning, said, we want to be the global network, right? We want to be the one where everyone is registered. If you have a professional networking platform, everyone should think LinkedIn. And these days, no one is using Sing anymore. (laughs) It's It's a very niche platform. People still have their accounts, but actually no one is on it. And it is because they restricted themselves from the very beginning in not expanding and not being able to be active in more markets. And I think, although our business model is quite different, I think we have something that businesses in emerging markets around the globe want, which is a cheaper form of energy that saves CO2 emissions. And then if I restrict myself on one country for too long, I'm basically facing the risk that someone else has thought globally and basically overtook me in size and then has just the capacity to either buy me out uh, or just let me be active in my market but they steal away basically all my possible projects so we said we we want to think of that from the very beginning now that doesn't mean that you from the beginning should roll out into 20 markets right that's definitely not what I mean with with think big and think as a global player it just is about knowing from the very beginning what your ambition is and then every move you can make can always always have that in your mind and you can Make sure the next move into a second market or the setup of certain organizational structures are built in a way that you always have the bigger goal in your mind of becoming a a big global player.
1: And something I'd like to talk about now is you have basically two platforms. You have Ecoligo, and then you have Investments, And this one I see is... Only in German right now?
0: It's only in German, and that has to do with the uh, financial markets that we're in, right? Because what we offer is a financial product. And financial products are regulated on a country-by-country basis. And then if you get a license to issue a financial product to the market, it's basically for a specific country. And with crowd investing, there are some certain regulations that, with the product that we have a license for, we can only offer it in Germany, and the way it's controlled by Baffin is by saying you're only allowed to advertise in German. It's of course a very, a very naive view on this because there are obviously people outside of Germany that also can read German, um, and there are people in Germany that would be legally allowed to invest that maybe don't speak German. But we have to live with that. We are obviously. Uh, Following regulation, there is, however, a harmonization happening on the European market that is about to get implemented in November this year. And we aim to offer the products on the finance side to the EU audience, basically from the end of the year, maybe beginning of next year onwards.
1: Okay. And is the plan also to internationalize that globally in in five to 10 years' time?
0: Yeah, that's actually not the plan. And the reason for that is at the moment, like I said earlier, we take advantage of the low interest environment in Europe, right? So if you think about enabling, let's say, uh, people from Vietnam to put capital into the Vietnamese projects, that doesn't make sense for them because at the moment, if they have their capital on a bank account, they get 7 to 9%. The financial incentive is not big enough. But like I said earlier, once... People and the mindset of people is changing and they're doing it primarily to get to support a climate change project or a project that prevents climate change from happening then obviously we're in a different situation but that is still a few years out and we don't want to get too much into too many things at once right so i think the european expansion is really what we can also manage from you know our team capacity and which is the logical next step uh, for us in the near-term future
1: I have a sad question regarding the business owners that you are supporting with with the projects. What's the incentive for them so they get the projects financed? But in that case, do they get free electricity, and then you are taking the the money at the top of that? No. So,
0: like, basically, they the only payments the business owner make to us are the monthly payments for the monthly energy we sell to them. The incentive for them to do it is. Uh, tailored down into basically two key pillars. The first is monetary savings. So our electricity is cheaper than the electricity they get from the grid. So if they can offset, let's say, 40% with their solar energy, and then on a kilowatt-hour unit price, they save maybe 20%. They can save 20% on 40% of the energy, which on large companies makes a substantial amount of money. The second pillar why they decide for us is, co2 emissions the supply chains of all of these businesses require that they become co2 neutral because they sell to large international brands like i know unilever ikea nike you name it right the customer demand that we have in the developed world now actually is being passed on in the supply chain and they have a need to become co2 neutral as otherwise they can't sell to these big brands anymore. And that's really what drives them. What makes them decide for Ecoligo is that we are offering a solution where they don't have to worry about anything, right? It's insured. We take care of operational maintenance. uh, We're easy to work with. We have flexible contracts. And, and that's what the customers then like, because obviously in the markets, there are many other companies offering similar solutions.
1: Very good point. I should have asked you that at the, at the beginning. Now I, <laughs> I understand that even more. It's a complex ecosystem in general. Like the more I'm interviewing people from the solar energy, the more I understand, but I still need to get these things. So the second do you send me is a don't, like don't expand though before you have a proven product market fit in at least one country. So what's your experience with that?
0: I think because also we're we're involved with many other startups and we follow them for years and years and, and see how they develop. And I think what we also underestimated is how long it takes to actually really make your idea into a product where a customer is willing to sign for, right? Uh, It sounds very simple, right? The idea of cheaper solar electricity for businesses sounds super simple. But then there are so many details that you need to understand really what is the customer's concerns when they do sign up for something like this. What, What are the things I need to adjust in my offering or maybe include like insurance, right? So that the customer at the end actually is willing to sign or to buy your product, whatever you do. And obviously, you need to have that proven and worked out in one market before you go to many others. Because otherwise, you don't know if you you still have to revise your product offering to make it work, or whether you're suddenly facing different market conditions. So you first need to really understand your own product and make sure you understand the customers. Once that is worked out, then you can go into the next market. And then you see, oh, here in this market, something is different. And you can a change on your product when you're offering the one or two things that are specific for that market. But you know that then you've addressed the needs of the customer. And I think the product market fit also means you need to have more than one customer. One customer could be a lucky shot. And especially when you do like large uh, infrastructure projects like we do, it could be just one person that was really committed to go CO2 neutral and no one else would want to buy your product. So you you really need to make sure that you have also ruled out that you had a lucky shot and you have a second customer and a third customer with the same product offering. Then I think you have a product fit. Now, Obviously, uh, some people have small consumer products or software solutions or something, then it's a little bit different uh, because you can get also much faster to to customers. But nevertheless, I think product market fit is one of the key things to have before you try to expand.
1: So in which market have you started and what was the hardest part you encountered there?
0: Yeah. So the first offering that we had when we were talking to customers was uh, in Ghana, And we offered 20-year contracts with, actually, the first one, I think, without handing over the solar asset to the customer. And there were two issues in that. One is the culture in Ghana uh, very much likes the idea of ownership. The second thing is business people in Ghana, the longest they think in terms of a time horizon is five to eight years, right? So we had to adjust our offering. So we had to basically make sure, okay, at the end of our contract, you become the asset owner, right? That means we had to price in that with the end of the contract, uh, all the repayments are done to the crowd investors. The second thing was shortening our period, something we just hadn't heard of before we started speaking to real customers and got their real feedback and said, customers said, if you offer it on a 10-year contract, I'm signing a 20-year is too long. Now, that also has evolved. I mean, the first customer interactions we had were five years ago. Nowadays, we also have customers that agree to a 20-year contract in Ghana. But it it took some while to get also them convinced of this.
1: Yeah, to establish trust and to also know a model. And the more customers you have, the more easier it gets to convince the others. The third do you sent me was focus on structure as early as possible and ensure it is set up to scale globally. What do you mean by that?
0: Yeah so we all know startup life is super stressful and hectic and especially once you start to see some traction and you get customers and you then have to deliver products or projects and there is a lot of things to to work on and one of them that usually is on the back burner is focus on process and structure because you don't see an immediate effect of it. And as long as it's still working with your small team in one country, you can you know basically play it without any processes, without any structure, without any sort of defined ways of how to do things. And then it gets left alone and you expand into a second country, third country, fourth country they don't have a structure in place. And suddenly it's too much work to retrofit it into a structure. And then there's pure chaos. In terms of approving offers, signing contracts, the sales process is not as it should be. There are things that get forgotten in the work. And people also don't know to whom do I have to report? What do I have to report? And so structure, which is something that especially fast-growing startups usually don't have, I think is actually super beneficial. If you set up structures early on, then that helps you to know how you want to work together uh, as a team. And that makes the, the life of everyone in the team just much more easy. Right, They can focus much better on the job at hand rather than sending emails back and forth on, Uh, whether there is approval needed or not for for doing something. And it's difficult uh, because you have to find the balance of not going overboard and designing processes that are theoretical ones that no one lives by, no one follows and are complete overkill and live in a corporate world, right? So they shouldn't be theoretical things you put on paper it should be something that can be lived by and employees understand why the structure and the processes are in place.
1: As you say, it's very difficult to find that balance. How do you know what's your personal experience, with colleague to be able to know, especially at the beginning, okay this is where we need to be more structured or this is maybe too much. Am I not trying to actually ask too much now? the beginning on and it's like not agile enough because of the structure so what was the hardest part of that and how did you figure it out
0: i think the hardest part but also the one that's the key to this is accepting that as a manager or a founder you don't know and you need to speak to your team closely and very intense and get really into the details of their daily work to understand where are the bottlenecks and Where are the things that we can help fix with a process or a structure or a guideline? Where are the things where the team needs freedom? And I think that's part of a founder's development. When you start a company, you do everything yourself. It doesn't matter what you do, you do it yourself. Bookkeeping, marketing, sales, everything. And then over the growth of the company, you give a lot of that away. And... At some point, you gave things away for so long uh, to so many different people and have not worked on that uh, yourself anymore, that you have a disconnect to how the daily life looks like. So for me, I was focusing on sales when I started the company. But in the last maybe six months, I rarely speak to customers, right? I focus on completely different things. So I'm not involved anymore in these processes. And... If I then would draft a structure or a process, it would be a very theoretical one that, you know, doesn't have anything to do with how my salespeople are actually running their sales. So therefore, you need to be close and accept that at some point you don't know anymore. And in order to set up a structure, you need all the input from the people that work in this day-to-day, and then you should have enough oversight to adjust it when needed but I think a mistake that I also made in the early days was to just sit in my office and draft a process and say, this is what you need to follow. That certainly doesn't work.
1: Talking about the example of the sales right now, when you want to have the input, is that something where you more you know trust the people, you have someone who is managing sales? If you say there are some issues in, in the processes, you just let them take the initiative Or you try to get closer to them to get involved in the process?
0: Yeah, definitely. Uh, I'd like to have uh, the team to have the opportunity to suggest uh, changes and and to spot where things are maybe not working that well and highlight uh, a recommendation or something. Sometimes my input is needed to say, sort of as the one that's ultimately responsible for sales, to say, yes, I approve this. Sometimes it's so little changes that I don't even want to Uh, approve them. And I I just say, look, anything you need to change within this part of the process, just do whatever is needed to make it work. But I think accountability is, again, is key. And I want also the team to understand they have accountability for the process. So if they see it's not working, that they can and should change it. And the more that people become sort of accountable, the easier also a founder life becomes, right? Because I don't have to spend my time on that anymore. And I can focus on the strategy, the growth of the company and so on. So ideally for a founder, the sooner you get people that take over elements of your work and you know and can trust them that, you know, it's completely out of my hands and in good hands, that really makes a life.
1: Very good point. Uh, Learn to like get people accountable, to become accountable and then let them fly. Talking about organization and structure and tools, what are the different tools you're using for project are you using, you know, like for project management communication, Asana, Slack Notion? Which of these tools are you using? Because you are like globally, if you want to get people accountable, you also want to also have that people know where to find the information, for example. Yes, exactly.
0: Yeah. We have a, a mix of tools here. Asana is our key project management tool, but also for your day-to-day to-dos, basically. And that's really grown over time quite substantially, I would say. There's nothing we don't manage with it. And then when it comes to communication and uh, the rest of the structure, we actually have everything sort of based on the Microsoft Office Suite. So we use Microsoft Teams for communication. We we don't use Slack. Um, I know Slack is used by many other companies, but we established with Teams. And then we also use the SharePoint infrastructure for, for file sharing, which nowadays everything is in the cloud synchronized, and then the SharePoint wikis for the knowledge sharing, where we document processes, where we document FAQs on certain topics, and all these kind of things that are, let's say, persistent pieces of information, right? The Teams channels obviously you discuss things, but then it, it ends up in the in the endless uh, <laughs> space of, of uh, discussions, but everything that needs to be uh, sticking around for a longer period uh, is put into a wiki, and then uh, we also use a OneNote uh, quite significantly, actually, for meeting minutes and everything, so that is also shared company-wide, so I can even join uh, the meeting minutes of the marketing team on a weekly basis, although I, I'm not part of that meeting. And because it's so easy to navigate, people also find things quickly. And if you're interested in why is marketing now doing this and this, you can just you know follow it up and read it up yourself. I think that's key because uh, otherwise you create communication bottlenecks, right? If you have silos of knowledge and then one person that knows everything about a department, uh, you always have to go to that person. And that will just make that person's life very unproductive and also annoy the rest of the team because they always have to ask for something whereas if everything is transparently shared with everyone i think it makes life just so much easier
1: when you say in asana there's nothing we don't manage with it are you also like using it uh, i like to ask these questions because i'm also a big fan of asana myself i'm a, like for those who don't know i'm also a certified like pro coach for Asana. So I help companies to sometimes set up Asana or implement Asana or optimize their workflow with Asana. Are you also managing the whole like sales process, for example, your lead generation and everything?
0: Yeah, so we have the opportunities in Asana and we basically move the opportunities uh, through the different stages. The the nice thing is that obviously um, when you structure it that way, an opportunity and then with uh, subtasks, It gives a lot of clarity on what is also the next action item on an opportunity. So that's actually, to me, the downside of uh, sort of commercial CRM systems that often don't have an integration into, for example, Asana. Then I have to manage my follow-ups within that CRM. um, And that makes it just complicated to have multiple systems, right? So um, in Asana, I can then also out of the CRM delegate, tasks to the technical team uh, to assess, for example, a system sizing for a project. And I don't have multiple systems to manage. I can just do it all in
1: one. So your Asana is your CRM in that case? Yeah. The fourth do's and don'ts is do not worry about local laws and regulation. There are legal and regulatory experts in each market that you can use. Tell me more about this.
0: Yeah, I think a lot of people are afraid to enter markets and to say, oh, I don't know about that market. But as a matter of fact, you don't have to. Obviously, you need to find out that piece of information about regulation and laws before you enter the market. But you don't need to know yourself necessarily. If you think, let's make an example, the Dominican Republic is an interesting market for solar projects and you need to find out about whether they are legally possible under the business model then obviously you need to reach out to the experts, right? So you need to uh, maybe talk to the local chamber of commerce, to the local solar or renewable energy organization, maybe also engage a lawyer to review your contracts so to make sure that they are possible in your market and are not against any local laws. But all of that expertise can be bought in. There are experts in the market because there are already companies doing business in these markets. And it's more a matter of finding this approach. We have sort of a standard approach when we look into new markets. We go to the same entities in in these markets, for example, the German Chamber of Commerce, first touch point. Then we say, we need a lawyer, we need an accountant, we need this. And they provide us contact details and we're done. And this is maybe two days of work. You shouldn't restrict yourself in saying, oh, I don't know about this market, because you can always find out. And yes, each market is different, but it's not something that typically restricts you too much in doing business. And I've I've, I've spoken with a lot of other companies that are not expanding in other markets because they say, yeah, but I don't know anything about that market. Yeah, but if you know there's great potential, then I think you also should find out about that market, right? (laughs) And um, not not worry too much about what you don't know, just worry about how you can find out and how can you make sure that you do know. And yeah, it's easier than people think. There is plenty of advice out there that you can use.
1: Are there any mistakes you've done when doing and like entering new markets that you would not do anymore now?
0: Mm, so far not, but I think what, what can always happen, and that is just also reality we're facing is you enter a market under certain conditions, and two or three years down the line, they change, uh, for example, a regulation. That is something that you may not know when you enter a market, and that may always happen, and that regulation could have an impact on how you do business. Uh, one example is uh, we were active in Kenya now for, for four years, and then two years ago, or maybe even a year ago, they in, introduced a new regulation that for our type of business, uh, you need to get a license. Because it was new for the regulatory body and also for us, we had to apply for the license, but the process wasn't smooth in the first project. Now, the second project, it was much faster. Now, we were done within uh, three weeks of the process, and the first one took almost nine months. So that can happen, but it can happen also in Germany, When you start in Germany and sell your product there, there may be a new regulation coming up. That is something that we just have to accept. And obviously, if you are in, let's say, 10 countries, it may happen that there's changes in two countries at the same time and you're you're being affected by it. But I actually think if you are in more countries, chances that this happens are actually smaller because it may happen in one of your markets, but you have nine other markets where You can do business as usual. If you were just in that one market where it happens, you may not actually make a sale for a year because of that regulatory change. So I think going into more countries helps also to ensure that you are not too much affected if there is ever a change.
1: In order to know these change of regulations in advance, are you actually working with these experts to have a watch on the, the, the upcoming laws and regulations? Is it something you set up that in every country you have one expert that's a consultant or in a house that is actually only watching the new laws and regulations? Yeah, our
0: country managers in the countries, they basically are in direct touch with the regulatory authorities. That's actually in these emerging markets quite common. There you have stakeholder meetings, the regulators invite also companies like ours to facilitate and to inform them about regulatory changes. In this particular example in, in Kenya, it was also that they announced this change of license uh, a few years back, but they propo- keep, uh, kept on postponing it. Uh, so no one really thought it's going to happen um, <laughs> anymore. And then it came basically quite sudden. But that's it's part of any business. Uh, I think also if you're focused on just one market, you need to always be checking whether your business model is uh, within what's, what's allowed. Yeah.
1: The last do you sent me was, do not underestimate different business culture in each market and ensure you have local talent that understands local market and culture. This is probably a bit tackling what we just discussed now, but maybe you have something to add?
0: It's just a fact that different cultural backgrounds or different country backgrounds help to do business in that market. So obviously the most obvious one is language. If you speak the local language, for example, Vietnamese, your business meetings are much easier. They are much more comfortable for the customers. They're much more comfortable for the partners. They're much more comfortable even for the person that is doing the uh, interview because they can do it in their own native language. And that is something that everyone can think of. Language obviously makes a lot of sense to get someone that speaks the language. But then there is all these subtle, less obvious elements of doing business, the way you uh, invite for a meeting, the things you can and cannot say to directors of companies, the ways how you phrase uh, a no, uh, for example, right? That's so different in each of these markets that we're in. Maybe an example is Costa Rica. People don't like saying no. No or telling you uh, if there is a problem. They always like to be very friendly and very positive about it, so you never find out if there is a problem, unless you have really developed a good sense of when someone is being just polite, but actually there is a problem, and whether someone is truly happy. And these fine differences are often difficult to spot for For example, for myself, if I am in Costa Rica and I have to speak in my best Spanish, which is not good to customers, I focus so much on myself that I lose focus on the actual situation. And that is super important. I think think that is something I would want to emphasize much more from the very beginning. Find local talent, get them onboarded, and then have them run the show in the local markets. It's, I think, actually also what what made us successful that we, since a few years in each of the market, have local people. There is obviously, as a consequence, sometimes a little bit extra effort that we have to do in the communication with our people because, you know, me with my German mindset and I'm half Dutch and the Dutch are also very direct in the way they communicate. That is obviously something that I then have to be aware of, that my team has also this different culture. And I need to adjust my way of how I can communicate with the team. But the way in, in doing business, I think it's super helpful to have this. Yeah. So whenever you enter a market, get someone that also has done basically the same kind of work in that market, that is super valuable.
1: Yeah, have your local expert. And I agree with that. And I think it's something that is like all the successful business do that with with country managers and people who know that part Have you read the culture map the book
0: I have not actually
1: no. it's one of the best books I've read recently and it's called the culture map and it really explained basically the different eight scales of how the different countries are actually have different cultures about communication, for example, that some countries have are, for example, low context. They assume that you know a lot of things, so it's very simple and very clear. And some con- cultures are very high context, so th- they need to explain you a lot before going to the point, being able to make sure you understand that. Or like same thing about disagreeing, for example, like some countries are very, very direct in the way they can disagree, and some like it is, for example, a bit in Germany, or even highest on the scale of that, for example, is is the Dutch people, where actually they can say, "I disagree, this is wrong," and nobody will be offended. You know, we can still be friends if you tell me that. And uh, like the minute after, well, if you say that to Japanese people, they will be totally offended, or especially in public. It's a super interesting book, and especially it explains, and it has scales. So it really explains where are the different countries, not all of them, but in general, where are the different countries, because everything is relative. So Americans can be very outspoken about something, but for example, to give feedback, they would never give feedback directly. So they explain, for example, that if you have, a as a manager, there are some examples of somebody having a feedback yearly feedback talk. And then in America, the culture has been like that. Find the United States, the culture has been like that their whole life. That they know that to before giving a, a bad feedback, they need to give at least three small things they like about you. <laughs> they would say these three things, and then tell you like, oh, but by the way, there is one thing you could improve is that. And then there is this example of a French manager. The person was like actually she, the consultant, was coaching. Was in, arrived in the United States and were like think, thinking that her job was amazing. And her boss was saying that she was horrible and that she didn't get her the feedback. And then it's just purely because she was like, she knows American is way more direct than, than French sometimes for the way they are interacting with you on a daily basis. So more, <coughs> much more like an informal. So, you know, you would expect that the same thing. And at the same time, like the French tends to be very, very direct and confrontational on the way mm. they give feedback and say, oh, I disagree as well. So for her, hearing the three first positive things before was like, yeah, I'm doing a good job. But actually, for an American, they do that all the time with everyone. So actually, when you receive a little like side note at the end, this is the most important part. <laughs> I can totally see that happening. Yes. Yeah. So we went through the different do's and don'ts. One last thing before we go through the usual questions ask. What has been your growth strategy so far? Because you are b 2 b to c You also have to attract businesses, but you also have to attract customers, investors in that case. So what has been your main growth strategies, the main channels you used, how you, you tackled it?
0: Yeah, on the crowd investor side, it's really until around nine months ago we grew completely organically, right? So there was no paid uh, media, there was no paid advertisement, nothing. But since then, we we are spending money on uh, digital marketing channels. Uh, So your Instagram ads, your Facebook ads, uh, you know, paid search and all these kind of things. And it's basically a, I would just almost call it a traditional digital marketing approach in uh, finding out the right keywords, you know, finding out the right Uh, images that work in terms of targeting customers and then having a retargeting strategy and converting those into investing crowd investors. That is, I would say, the simple part. The other side is obviously making sure we get enough projects. So we have, in each of the countries, we have uh, sales teams that talk directly to customers. But also, and this is an important pillar of our growth they talk to the partner companies that are building the projects. And we basically have a partner program whereby the partners that bring us projects get better pricing and over time also basically get get further benefits from us, for example, faster response time, uh, more customer support, and so on. And working so closely with these partners helps us to grow because the partners we can have multiple in each country, right? So we can have maybe 10 companies that can build solar projects in Kenya and then they bring us one project each. So we have a lot of projects coming from these partners. But a third growth strategy, and we started doing that only last year, is offering different projects than solar projects. So for example, it is energy efficiency projects. So replacing maybe the air conditioning unit of a hotel group with like 100 rooms to the latest state-of-the-art super efficient air conditioning units, thereby saving the customer again energy because more efficient units take less energy, saving CO2 emissions. And instead of selling electricity, we basically lease the asset. So the customer pays a monthly fee on that. And That is actually part of also our future growth strategy, that we remain focused on um, financing and financing assets that help avoid CO2 emissions. But we can do more than just solar PV, right? We can do cold store rooms. We can do efficient air conditioning. We could do solar hot water. We could do industrial heat. We could even lease an electric car fleet for a company or something Everything that is like an asset that avoids CO2 emission is something that we would have an interest in. And we can actually map with our current existing contracts and and the business structure. So it's just natural to think about one customer that maybe has a solar system as of today that we can upsell to him tomorrow an energy efficiency system, maybe LED uh, lighting throughout their entire factory or more efficient uh, motors or Anything really that helps to avoid energy consumption and thereby avoid CO2 emissions.
1: Okay, so entering different verticals, so like heat pumps or anything. Yes, yeah.
0: And obviously entering new markets, right? I mean, new countries, that's always part of the the strategy as well.
1: Talking about the usual questions I ask my guests, what is the best advice you've been given as an entrepreneur?
0: It, It sounds so cliche, but just do it. That was one of the, the key advices, is like, don't worry too much about what could go wrong if you do something, because you will only find out when you do it and you have to do it to find out. So there's no way around it. And a lot of startups get stuck into too much thinking about what they do, but then they do it. Six months down the line and then they find out all their thinking was wrong because they forgot an item or it's actually different in the reality. So if you would have done it six months ago, you would have had that learning six months ago and you, you know, would have have adjusted. So I really think just do it is really one of the best advices.
1: Do it and learn. Yeah. Uh, Which book would you recommend entrepreneurs like you to read or which book has influenced you uh, recently or in your life in general?
0: Recently, I actually read who, so the question who, which is about who to hire, right? Uh, And I think the success of EcoNigo is also coming, I would say 90% is the people that we hired. If we would have hired the wrong people, we weren't where we are today. I think as an entrepreneur, you sometimes forget that not everyone is like yourself, but yet you need to find the right people that can do uh, the best job for the position you're hiring. And a lot of the hiring processes are, at the end, just based on gut feelings, right? They're like, oh yeah, I like this person, I think you can, yeah, you can really be good at a job, but they're not based on facts. And this book is really about the experience that the authors of the book had in setting up a hiring process that removes your gut feeling bias and rather focuses on the true facts of is there a culture fit? Is this person the person that can achieve at least 90% of the goals that you set out for this job? And and so on. And that makes hiring a lot easier. And if there's one thing I would also emphasize for each entrepreneur out there is don't underestimate what impact it has to hire the right people versus hiring the wrong people on your entire company. So this book, I think I read I read too late. I would have been happy if I would have read it a few years earlier. But it's an interesting book, very pragmatic also. Uh, a lot of the business books sometimes are quite theoretical. This one was very hands-on, which I like, you know.
1: What is the key highlight? What did it teach you that you are applying right now in terms of recruiting?
0: Just making sure that you have a process set up and that in the process, you're not spending too much time on the early stages and that you filter out quite radical. One good example that the book also then emphasized on is asking a particular question, which is where do you see yourself in in two years, which is a very common question. But if you actually listen exactly and you ask that as a a very first question in the first interview and people say, oh yeah, I actually want to be a consultant one day, but you're hiring for a sales manager position, then you know already if he doesn't want to stay in sales, two years down the line, he will leave because he will have his consulting opportunity coming up. So, you can, by phrasing questions in a certain way and, and emphasizing on that, you can really find out do I have to spend time on the interview process on this person? And it helps you in each of the steps of the process to filter much better. Because, yeah, by CV, this person looked awesome. But obviously, if he wants to become a consultant, he should apply on consulting positions, right? Not on a sales position. If he wants to get out of sales, that's just as an example. But there's many of these small things mm-hmm. that the book highlights. And uh, we implemented them in the hiring process, and we actually found them to be working quite well.
1: This was a very interesting topic for those who are listening, who are interested into the topic. We talked extensively about that with Christophe Berger from Philisto, that you might know, also from Berlin. They also have a very, very extensive process, including a hospitation phase at the end, where the last candidates filtered are actually spending some time or at least working half a day with the people there they are supposed to interact and work with. Is it something you also have in your company?
0: Yes and no. So we actually, that's one of the elements we're, we're just about to change again. So in the past, we had what's, what was a, sort of like a team call. So the team had the opportunity to meet the final candidates and uh, just talk about and, and also have their say in the process. That became, however, quite time-consuming and difficult to manage with teams in different time zones. And then some people felt a little bit left out because they couldn't ever join. So that that's what we had. And then what we what are Going for uh, is also to have the candidates basically be involved in uh, a little bit of the daily work. Yeah? So whether it's just uh, one or two meetings or half a day of just, just joining and seeing how we work as a team, uh, that, that we're not too sure about yet, but it certainly is a, a step that we're looking for. It's obviously at the moment a bit difficult because everyone works remote, so you can't just say come by the office and you can join one or two meetings and talk a little bit with the people. That's obviously at the moment a bit different, um, so we have to adjust for that.
1: Yeah, Corona doesn't make it easy right now, so that's... that's no, it sure. not <laughs> <laughs> I can add that to the international side of your company, it makes it even more difficult. What is the, the podcast, the blog, or the influencer you'd recommend to follow on LinkedIn? So you were pretty active on LinkedIn. so like you, know, you have more than 7,000 followers. That's really good. And also your company has more than 5,000 followers. So you know, what are the people, the blog, or podcast, or LinkedIn influencers you recommend to follow as an entrepreneur?
0: I think I'm, I'm not a big fan of these recommendations because they're just so personal. What I do recommend is follow a lot of people Start following almost everyone that is doing something that interests you, and then figure out what format of content is actually the one you like. So, for example, for me, uh, I like audiobooks because I, you know, when I want to listen to a book, I do it typically when I'm on the train or something. So, I don't want to hold a book, I, I like audiobooks. But then I don't like podcasts because somehow I never get to them. And then when I listen to them, they always feel a little bit outdated. And so I'm personally not a podcast fan, Uh, but that's just because I have not found a routine where I can make sure I have the time to listen to these regular episodes. Um, And I think that is just something that uh, I would just advise everyone, like you're different, right, to whatever someone recommends, just find out your own way of how you want to listen to things and stuff. And then in terms of finding sort of a good podcast or so, I think... I think I've never really listened to so many that I could actually recommend one. Somehow I have like a bunch of podcasts that I've in my list of, of listen to them, but I never got to listen, so I can't really recommend any of them. What I do like to do, though, is <clears throat> just follow people on LinkedIn and see what is the content they share there. So not necessarily listen exactly to like the podcast or so, but then Seeing other people from the industry, whether it's clean tech startups or sustainable finance or solar companies post content, gives you a good feel of where the markets are actually standing. What is the buzz that is happening? What are the keywords people are, are using? What is maybe topics you haven't heard of that are relevant for you in your business? <clears throat> and so that is what I do. But maybe I'm also just not having have time to listen to like podcasts and stuff. Maybe I should actually change my routine to find time
1: for that. <laughs> I mean, there's nothing you should do. I think it's, it's always things you, yeah. you can do and you can decide to do. It's hard to focus on lots of different things at, at one time as well. I like your approach of saying you should follow people who are doing something you like in your field or your industry in one channel. LinkedIn for that is very, very useful right now because it, I think the... The way the algorithm is done right now, organically, you still can reach a lot of people and you, you're not so much in a circle, in the bubble, like you are on Facebook, for example, or, yeah. or Insta- Instagram. I think for that, LinkedIn is cool. And I can only recommend also to people to do what you said, just follow people that are in your field and it's a good way to start on LinkedIn or podcast, it's the same thing as well.
0: Yeah. maybe a, a follow-up here. I think as an entrepreneur a lot of times why you listen to podcasts is because you're seeking advice, right? So on business podcasts, you want to find out, uh, like on today's topic, right? How can I manage maybe internationalization? What I think though is always a little bit of a problem is that everyone's company situation is quite unique. uh, And the amount of resources you have is different and uh, your product is different. uh, Your stage of the company is different. So what I actually think but what is relevant for me as a founder much more is to have like a business coach at hands that I know I can call when I have a question that has maybe successfully started a company uh, that maybe is involved in other companies as a business angel and it has a, a unique perspective but that also has been following me and my company from the beginning because then they know my situation personally, they know the company's situation they know exactly our products and our offerings, and I can reach out for any questions. That to me is super valuable, right? Half an hour chat with another business buddy, uh, you could call them, brings a lot of value to the table.
1: What you're meaning here is that, you know, a mentor or is that for something usually sometimes investors stay that kind of role or? Could be.
0: I mean, mentor is, I think, maybe just a, a different word for it. and that person could be an investor into your company, but doesn't have to, right? If you just know of someone that also has started a a company. So in our case, when we started in the Climate Kick accelerator program five years ago, there were obviously a few other companies starting at the same time. And if you're still friends with one or two of the founders that are also still around doing their companies as of today, they are also really good go-to persons, right? Because they've you know, experience the same problems. So I think it's more a matter of building your own network of people that you can reach out to if you have, like, a specific issue. And then, to me, that is, that is time really well spent. Yeah. And I think it goes both ways. If you yourself also then have the time to answer questions from people that are maybe in their startup phase, maybe a little bit behind where you stand, and they see that as super valuable. And there's always something you can learn as well. But so these interactions, I think, they're really what, what, what are helpful to me.
1: Having more like a, a community in that case of people who are mm. in the same stage or slightly ahead or behind you, but at least that you can exactly. share best advice. This is something I'm working on. And this is one of the next ideas I have with this podcast. Let's keep on, it keeps on growing. So like, uh, thank you for...
0: Like, Success with that could, already.
1: <laughs> <laughs> thank you for confirming me that this could be a potentially good idea. The difficult part is to know how do you do it? How do you find these? How do you put people together that are at the same stage? I think one of the problems of the communities and the hard part about building communities, I don't know about your experience, but having one or two persons you can call to, that's awesome because you can do it very like uh, often. But when you reach communities, what I've experienced is that sometimes you join these Slack groups and everything is scattered across multiple channels. And uh, if you miss something, you never know like where, where it's going. It's not useful for me. I haven't found a Slack group yet that I found really, really useful. I mean, yeah, the one from the Green Tech Alliance actually is, is, is pretty useful. That's, so that's one. Uh, so for those who are so Green Tech Entrepreneurs, Green Tech Alliance is something that is one of the first uh, Slack group that is useful for me. But I still have – I'm not on Slack every day. So I have to exactly. actively go there. What I like, for example, is – I have a, a French group which is actually for freelancers where actually you had to commit to a, a small free course which was two or three videos and then at the end of it you receive a, a link to, to sign up for the WhatsApp group so it means all the people reach that point were actually enough interested into the freelance life to actually be at that level and they call it kind of a coffee machine WhatsApp group mm-hmm. and it's actually, it's kind of cool because there are like every day I have 50 notifications and I, most of the time I just don't read them. But sometimes I have five minutes in the train and I don't feel like doing something else. I just jump in. And then some people are asking questions about most of the time things that I'm actually having the same trouble or I have experience with. So it's really like very interactive. And I like that part. And for those who are listening now, it's something actually that I'm actually wondering is what would be the best way to build that community for the entrepreneurs, the green entrepreneurs out there. And what's your experience with it?
0: I have the same experience. I'm not on Slack every day. And when I'm on Slack and I'm in so many channels there, um, it's very difficult to catch up on on what has been discussed and whether there's something meaningful in there. And I feel also like a lot of it is a singular broadcast, right? So people post what they are looking for or something, but there is not that much of an interaction. And it also feels like it, it... It could have the potential that you go on a side chat or something with someone that may help you but finding that person first in a slack channel with hundreds of people is so difficult as well because you only know the name right you don't even know who's who and so it's it's difficult if you have the time to like check your slack daily maybe yes but then if you're in so many channels that possibly could be interesting checking it daily is at least half an hour of work and I don't have that half an hour. So, you know, it's 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 yeah, it's not easy. I think actually, I always think there is still room for like a proper community where you somehow can interact with the people much better and find out also much faster whether there is someone that could be helpful for you at that question that you have or something. But that's also just my experience i think others have maybe different experiences and are very positive about the slack groups it depends on how you actually uh, manage it yourself i guess
1: last question for today is can you tell me one thing about yourself that i wouldn't be able to find out online
0: oh wow well, there's so much about me online that i'm not sure
1: <laughs> that's a good question
0: well there are many things of my personal life but uh,
1: if you're willing also, to share of course <laughs> the,
0: the, exactly that I'm not going to share i think actually all of my professional things are online maybe maybe one thing is that i have that you can't find online is that i i don't like watching tv but i do like watching youtube channels where i can learn something for example uh, construction i like watching people construct a house from scratch and then explain how they do it and how they build it and why to look out for the concrete here. Somehow in my mind, I'm still very technical and an engineer, which is what I learned by trade. So I just like building things and people and soaking up how to build something. My girlfriend always makes fun of me because I, I watch these videos and then I said, oh, this was amazing. I learned how to do that. And she's like, yeah, but you're not going to do it. And I'm like, yeah, but now I know. how <laughs> But I think it's. To me, as long as I can learn something, it's much more valuable than watching TV, which I just don't like.
1: A common thing among uh, successful entrepreneurs, uh, I think, the the ability... Not not watching TV. Not watching TV, maybe, but also this craving for for learning. Last thing on your side, what do you want to share uh, for the audience listening to us now? Are you hiring? Are you recruiting? Are you looking for investors for the company? I will share, of course, all the links to... The Ecoligo platform, so it is ecoligo.investments for the the investment platforms, which is in German now, and ecoligo.com for the the company. It's your time if you want to share anything with our audience now.
0: I mean, we're always hiring. We're always looking for money. So (laughs) if anyone is looking for a job or wants to invest, uh, feel free to reach out. I think what, well, there's two things I want to encourage everyone. When we started the business, we got a lot of feedback that our business model is too complex and we shouldn't do it. Now we're five years later and it's working exactly in the way that we had it in the business plan back then. So don't get discouraged from people telling you you can't do it. Just do it. And the second thing is be aware of the impact you can have yourself with the decisions you make and with the use of sustainable materials, with eating less meat, with eating just more uh, local produce, and also with your money in terms of sustainable investing, in terms of not leaving it on your Deutsche Bank bank account, and rather think about what you can achieve with your money besides financial returns that are obviously also relevant investigate what opportunities you have. Obviously, we would be very happy if you invest on the Ecolego.investments platform, but there are many other sustainable financial products out there. Just do something with your money. Don't let it sit on your bank account.
1: Thank you very much for the advice. I will share all the links and all the resources on the website page. And uh, on your side, I wish you all the best to keep on expanding internationally and keep on having a, a positive impact on this planet to be able to save it as your mission is.
0: Thanks and thank you very much for for the invitation and this nice discussion that we had. Looking forward to hear it on the podcast.
1: Thank you Martin. Bye bye. If you like this podcast, there are two things you can do that would mean the world to me. The first thing is to sign up for the podcast newsletter. That way you will be notified of the new episodes but you will also get a summary of the learnings at the end of every season. Plus, for each episode, you will get the resources and the list of do's and don'ts that every guest shares with me. And finally, you will also get the opportunity to ask our future guests one question in advance. You can sign up for this newsletter on gtimpact.com. The second thing you can do to be super helpful is to recommend this podcast. For that, you can write a review on Apple Podcasts and share the podcast with your friends, other entrepreneurs and people trying to build a sustainable future. That way, we can all learn together and work on a brighter future for us, our children and our planet. Thank you very much and see you next week for the next episode. Have a nice day.